the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Eric. Hi, Kate. Today we have a conversation with Lydia Millett, author of the short story collection, Fight No More. These stories are about real estate in Los Angeles. They're quiet stories and kind of intimate stories, like you were saying, Kate, about um, homes in Los Angeles. And they also have that kind of kaleidoscopic Los Angeles feel that Eve Babbitts has. Not maybe quite as like zany as, as her stories can sometimes get, but that kind of like the everyday moments in Los Angeles that like add up to kind of a bigger, like more profound statement, I think. Yeah, it's not big Hollywood stars. Right, exactly. Earthquakes and <laughs> mudslides. Yeah, maybe Eve Babbitt's wasn't the right reference well, for this. Well, no, no, because her stories lead you into a whole world of Los right. Angeles, and, and these and these stories do too, maybe, in a slightly different way, but I think that's an interesting comparison. All right, well, should we get to it? Sure, let's listen. We're excited to have Lydia Millett in the studio with us today. Lydia is the author of a number of novels and short story collections, including Love and Infant Monkeys, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and My Happy Life, which won a Penn Center USA Award for fiction. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, the short story collection Fight No More. The collection stories are all set in Los Angeles, linked by characters who course through the city's glittering and hardscrabble neighborhoods through its joys and pains, both public and private. Welcome to the show, Lydia. Thanks for having me. So one thing that I wanted to start with as a way of opening up the conversation is to say that it seems like we're in, and maybe just this is my lack of long historical knowledge, but that we're in a particularly ripe moment for short fiction. There's been the collection from Laura and Groff. There's also Carmen Maria Machado's collection of stories that has gotten a lot of press and interest. And I'm wondering, do you think that we are in some kind of ripe moment where people are turning to short fiction? Or is this just kind of another kind of flowering of an always popular genre? Well, I think it makes sense with our current short attention span as a culture that sure. we would be interested in short fiction. Also, you know, I mean, it's been around for a long time, and I think really there are just sort of these spates of things that occur mm-hmm. simultaneously, and then people want to call it a trend, like when people were saying that irony had disappeared after 9-11. You know, not true. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so partly, yeah, I think a lot of good things have come out that are short fiction recently. I really loved Joy Williams' collection that came out, I want to say, five years ago or something, that, that was actually 99, the, the 99 story, actually the um, 99 stories of God, which were like micro mm-hmm. stories, really, and brilliant. That was my favorite thing of hers recently, actually. But so, yeah, there have been a lot of good short things. I don't know if I'm ready to, like, see it as some sort of linear progression away from the novel. I certainly hope not. Now, since you are somebody that writes novels, is there something that you find interesting to you formally about short fiction? That, like, is there something that you feel you can do in short fiction that you can't quite do in a novel? Mm, Write it quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Does it get written more quickly? Yeah, yeah. So for me, short stories are a kind of playtime between novels or when I'm procrastinating on a longer book or can't really figure out exactly what to do with one or I'm about to trash one that's half written or something. So so it's fun to just lose yourself in these smaller fragments of things. This is interesting because these are interlinked stories. Mm -hmm. So how did you decide to make this, you know, I think someone could call this a novel in stories if they wanted. So is there a difference to you between a formal short story and a novel in stories? Or how do you know when a story is kind of there on its own? Well, so I think there are, I mean, I would always hope that even in this linked collection, all the stories stand on their own. But certainly the more deeply embedded you are in the context when you're going into a story, the less it's like an autonomous piece of fiction. And there are some things that you, that in this collection that you need to have a little more background in to fully understand, I guess, the world. But I would hope that they still stand on their own for the most part. It's harder to see that when you're the writer of them, you know. And also, because I write in this very simple-minded way that's just sort of chronological, you know, I just go from the first story Mm. to the last story and I don't, I'm not writing stories later and then inserting them into, Mm. it's just very simple and straightforward the way I write. mm -hmm. So I don't perhaps even know how much context a reader needs in story number eight, you know, because my assumption is, is that people are reading with me as I write sort of. So are you creating a plot arc 
along the way as you write or when you start out, do you already kind of know where you're headed and where you're going? Never know where I'm headed. No map at all. Yeah, That's so, so interesting. <laughs> so I just kind of keep going and things take form. And well, how do you then put, because as Kate's been saying, it's like the stories are all linked and what's kind of beautiful about it is the way that you move through a kind of kaleidoscope of Los Angeles by finding the first story gives us a certain set of characters and then you move on to another set. And how do you find the character that will move you to the next story? Is that just by whim or who strikes your fancy? I think it's pretty whimsical. Okay. It also is just who I'm actually interested in following. Mm -hmm. And they all sort of work out that way. And I sort of end up circling back to, you know, to earlier characters that might have been sort of minor characters sometimes. Right. I mean, I certainly don't think I'm the only one who does this or anything. But yeah, I can't really premeditate. I'm just not a calculator of fiction sort of before the fact. I did used to write that way when I was young. So my first two or three books were somewhat plotted out. But I just can't do it anymore. It sort of robs me of joy to do that. And I just, you know, I write to be happy. So, yeah, I don't plan. That sounds unique. (laughs) (laughs) Something that it's interesting about this book is now that you say, like, you haven't plotted it out, is that maybe the plot is replaced by actual plots of land. So, like, the first story is really dedicated to the selling of this house. And then we find out that the rest of the stories are also linked to other houses throughout Los Angeles and what are otherwise plots of land. And some people want to tear the house down. They're really just buying it for the space. And what is it about houses and plots that got you into this? Well, so I do think of people's homes as sort of intimate maps to their psyches mm-hmm. and stuff. And I thought having a realtor be the window into this world would allow me to do a lot with people's sort of private lives and the way that they protect themselves through their homes and the way they display themselves through their homes and those sorts of contrasts. And Because really I was sort of, I was thinking about voyeurism and how voyeurism's kind of disappeared in the culture. I mean, it's almost just sort of a quaint idea because everything's voyeuristic, right? So nothing's voyeuristic in a sense where everything's spectacle. Everyone spends all their time watching. The culture asks us to watch what is private and craven all the time, every day, you know? So because it's this performative, like, spectacle of personal material that we're being subjected to every day, it's as though voyeurism is no longer considered a perversion, Mm. You know, mm. and so I sort of wanted to write about the difference between, you know, in a sort of less than direct way, but the difference between surreptitiously watching peeping Tomism or whatever and actually being invited to watch. And I think people's homes really are these odd spaces, liminal spaces, an anthropologist mm-hmm. might say or something, <laughs> where, where um, you know, people often... Well, there are kind of two kinds of homes, right? Ones that are meant to be lived in and ones that are meant to be seen in a broad sense. And then there's a, you know, a range in between. And I kind of like that intersection or that just sort of crisis point in a home when I'm in a stranger's house, which happens less and less often as I get older. But (laughs) in a stranger's house and, and you sort of see what they want you to see and then you also kind of see what they don't want you to see. Even without prying into their personal affairs, you can sort of see where their blind spots are about themselves and Mm -hmm. where their performances fail. And so I kind of was interested in that because realtors get this sort of broad license to enter into people's private spaces in this prolonged way that you don't just at a party. So because they're being asked to buy or sell these spaces and to know the people they're dealing with, and they really do need to know their desires and everything. They need to be able to understand how people see themselves and how they want to see themselves and their aspirations and stuff. So they really are these portholes into, I think, sometimes the personalities and emotions of all the characters they deal with. I had a realtor friend who sort of took me around with her sometimes at a certain point, and it was amazing how well she could gauge people's motivations. Nina's actually pretty bad at it. She, start, she starts out, yeah, right. That's she the starts main out, character. That's right. Like she's the, the completely. Realtor. She has all these like fantasy. Sort yeah, she has. Of paranoid, she's way off. Right. right? She has right. this sort of fantasy about her client being an African dictator. <laughs> yeah. Right. But he's just like a recording artist from LA. Right. He's just a guy with a weird hat on. <laughs> yeah, she's full um, of like prejudices and snap judgments and stuff. But also, she's someone I think in the beginning who's very lonely and almost just. Her mind's sort of playing games with mm-hmm, her and right. she's isolated. And, and you know, real estate agent was one of those jobs when 
when sort of middle-class, working-class women started doing it, it was one of the few jobs where you could make good money without having a diploma or something. Maybe your kids yeah. have grown up, yeah. whatever. So it has this whole history of being this place where not necessarily educated, but but clever and intuitive women could carve out an economic sort of niche for themselves. And she really is this sort of, you know, this lonely creature in the beginning who, she's almost not even quite serious about the fantasies that she's entertaining because she doesn't actually run screaming out of the house, even though she claims an assault is about to get underway, right, of these clients against her. It's interesting that voyeurism, I, you know, I didn't really put together the two kinds of voyeurism that you reference, the kind of in real life voyeurism and then the, you know, world of online looking where there's no propriety in terms of what you can look at basically and what you can't. And I, but now that you say that, I'm thinking to these two stories in the collection, one with a teenage boy who's in a house that's being sold kind of defiantly <laughs> masturbating. And then uh, one that comes later in the book, which totally blindsided me. And it's a very, very disturbing story about the relationship between a stepfather and his stepdaughter. You know, no one has mentioned that story in any of the no. interviews that oh, I've really? done for this book. And I was really wondering when someone was going to. Yeah. Because it's pretty graphic. It is. I totally didn't expect it to go there. And, you know, sometimes as a reader to kind of witness an illicit sex scene you know, that you don't know actually what it's trying to make you feel because it is a graphic scene and it's told from the point of view, kind of from the voice of the older... Pedophile. Pedophile, yeah. But it still has, I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't sure exactly how I came away feeling after the story because it Mm -hmm. wasn't just pure disgust, I have to say. So there is an illicit, you know, and that's a fantasy for a lot of porn, like these, you know, kind of familial relationships that's like Mm -hmm. a trope in pornography because it's so taboo yeah but it seems like in both those stories even though there is a lot of voyeurism in the world those are two examples of a case where in real life these kind of more voyeuristic situations where he's looking at these pictures of his stepdaughter and it's really it's still actually completely disturbing and the scene where nina walks in on the you know, this young guy masturbating is also, I mean, it's disturbing to her. It's not like she just thinks. So I wonder, do you really think that the line between voyeurism, you know, is there really no such thing as voyeurism or kind of limits of... No, I do think there's still such a thing as it. It's just that voyeurism sort of no longer, I think, has the connotations that it used to, or it's not so... It's far more complex than simply being a taboo because we're so engaged with it on a daily basis. But I do think there are serious distinctions between, I think, what you're... or how I interpret what you're asking is, is it fair to equate something where there's actual spying and actual transgression involved with, you know, just a culture of watching? And and it's not. I'm not equating those things, right. really. It's just, you know, because most of what we're seeing, even if it's crass and just insanely nude and exploitative and stuff in the culture at large, what we're seeing there is made for us, no matter how sort of repugnant yeah. it is. It's made to be seen, right? right. And so there's clearly a line between that and just people in their lives, people in their homes. And some homes are made to be seen, as I was saying. But really, you know, there's a distinction between just people's actual lives that they're living and the way that we might spy on those or transgress against those and products that are created expressly for the sake of us watching them. Right. So, But I do think mm-hmm. it's such a massive thing in culture now to just watch and to watch, you know, the crass rich, the crass poor, anyone we can sort of get our hooks into as a culture, anyone whose blind spots are are visible to us. You know, there's this real, I think, spiteful, malevolent, like schadenfreude or something in the culture around watching gross people do gross things and display themselves and like really be naked. Like there's just this this performative nudity that I find actually deeply unfortunate. Do you find yourself vulnerable to that? Like, is there a part of you that is completely, finds it grotesque, this watching of the grossness? But is there a part of you that is also, like, drawn in by it? Well, I guess it would depend what. You know, I'm not at all seduced by, like, the Kardashians or the Trump rigmarole or any. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not really seduced by the new rich and their vileness. Mm-hmm. That doesn't call out to me. I am kind of seduced by the, the eccentrics, tales of eccentrics and stuff like that. And I think, I think there's a scene in this book in one of the stories yeah, where Nina's watching, my friend Jenny Ophil, the writer, made me watch this sometime back, but it's a reality show where people eat weird stuff, fall in love with, you know, inanimate objects and stuff like that. I am kind of, <laughs> I mean, it's mostly staged, of course, but I'm kind of drawn to that just because 
of the creativity involved in actually putting some of these scenarios together. <laughs> like the woman who eats talc, just like eats just so much talc and then goes into the doctor's office and is, in fact, fine, you know, totally fine, where everyone was expecting her to be just, ooh, you, know, you shouldn't eat so much talc. I mean, just giant sacks of talc. I still don't know how true any of that is or how just completely fictional it is. So I'm talking sort of about reality TV here, and reality TV is, in general, is distressing to me. It seems like gladiators, you know, in the Roman Forum or something. It just seems like so exploitative and so base. You know, I can't tar it all with the same brush, but in general, I'm sort of horrified that we've sunk so low. <laughs> well, there, there is a way in which, I mean, I'm very interested to hear the stuff about reality TV because on the one hand, it's not exactly like gladiators, right? Because to your point before, this is a kind of voyeurism that what you're actually watching is highly scripted, right? So, and even as you're saying from the Kardashians to the kind of, you know, like even things like, I don't know, like my 600 pound life or something like that. <laughs> like there's parts of that. I mean, I love, I should say, like the whole range of these things in my own way. But there's parts of those that are also scripted, you know, the like, oh, let's do that again. No, I need you more to do this type of thing. So yeah. we are taking pleasure in something that appears like nakedness, but is a highly constructive kind of nakedness. It's like a striptease in that sense. But there's also a lot of literal nakedness, you know. Right. Oh, you mean like actual, <laughs> actual, actual nudity. Just, like people's asses being just on covers of, ma- just everywhere, sure. like their entire ass. I mean, just, <laughs> I, I'm just, it seems to me to be robbing us of, I don't think the entire culture should be blanketed in pornography. You know, I worked for Hustler. I've worked in pornography. I don't necessarily object. I certainly don't object to like erotica. I've sort of written some version of pornography in one of these stories yeah. in a sense, even though it's mm. repulsive. But much porn is repulsive, and it's much of it is exploited. I'm not some sort of anti-porn crusader, but just the idea that everything now in the public sphere is debased that way and everything is like under fluorescent lights. The body is under fluorescent lights. Mostly the bodies of women are under fluorescent right. lights. Yes. Mm-hmm. And an and, idealized body at that. Yeah, and it saddens me. I don't know. It just kind of breaks my heart because I'm sort of a romantic. So the point that I was trying to make is that like there's on the one hand this performed voyeurism where it's like you're seeing something that's scripted. But what I love about your stories is the way in which you're moving between two registers to something that is like I'm thinking of the story, the name of which I can't remember, but at the center of it is a forgery of a Hieronymus Bosch painting, the Garden yeah, of Earthly Delights. Yeah, that's called Birdhead Monster. Yeah, Birdhead Monster, in which on the one hand this house is being staged in order to give you the illusion or fantasy of what it would be like to be in it. And the guy, the kind of really repulsive, awful guy at the center of it, who is there with a woman who believes she is his fiance, but turns out to be his mistress, the moment when she finds that out, she's overhearing something, right? So there's like a voyeurism, but it's the thing that's not scripted and that she's not supposed to see. And I love how you tease between those two lines, because that for a reader is a moment of actual feeling, right? Where the other types of things and like all the things that we've been talking about, the Kardashian, there is no real feeling there. You Mm -hmm. can't feel something Mm -hmm. that is just like programmed for you. So can you talk a little bit about how you find moments sometimes even in homes in kind of around a corner or the kind of perspective that a corner allows you in which you can see the thing which is not scripted? Like how do you bring the thing forward for us that is actually real, the really heartbreaking thing, not just the scripted heartbreak? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I find it pretty difficult to answer that. Because really, it's, for example, in that story, that moment where she finds that out, I didn't know about beforehand, you know? Just, what do you mean? So, because I don't plan things. I simply didn't know that was going to happen. Really, it's like, I don't know a way to talk about my so-called process, process that, isn't, sure, sure. that isn't sort of annoying and just essentially irritating to others to hear. <laughs> but really, when I'm writing, it's the way I think, right? So I okay. think by writing. I don't really think outside writing. So when I'm writing something like that, I'm as surprised as you are that that occurs, really. Mm-hmm. It really is just a form of immersion in something. And, you know, language is just sort of being channeled wow. through my middle-aged so brain. So suddenly you just um, know. And no. that just happens. And But I don't also, I don't like it when people are like, oh, the character did this, you know, the character wanted to do that or whatever. I'm actually really averse to people saying, yeah. that, you know, like, well, I wanted to write about, you know, a guy who was having a sex change, but that just wasn't the character or whatever. And you're like, but you made that out of words. Like, sure, right? you know, sure. you get to do what you want. So part of me hates that I, that I have to say this. It's just that things do happen to me. And that's why I love writing because I, sort of approach it as a reader would.
You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We now return to our conversation with Lydia Millet, author of Fight No More. so funny i was i was recently editing a short story and I, there was one part of it where i asked the writer i love this part what does it mean you know she said i i can't i have no I, I can't explain it i'm so sorry but with your story and I, I feel like i had a sense of that while i was reading it because part of it felt like it was in the rhythm of the thing and but your story and especially well all of them but that one now that i think of it and that now that eric puts it in those terms there's so many layers that are then s- scraped off. I don't want to give away mm-hmm. the ending. Mm-hmm. I sort of did, but there's like a forgery, but it, we're, we know it's fake, but it's the best forgery in the world. Right. Right. So that's surprising. To, it's surprising to me that you don't have the ending. Well, really, so the, so that scene is a dialogue where that comes up. That's mm-hmm. dialogue and stuff. And that's always sort of what happens to me in dialogue. Like I'm just writing a conversation the way you might, you know, hear one. Mm-hmm. And you just like hear a conversation that people could be having and then... And that's where it goes. So it, just like you're just inventing it. You're playing with a conversation in your head. And, you know, I know that's an irritating answer. Really, to <laughs> no, <both. laughs> no, it's but, fine. But it is just kind of how, how that works for me. It's, it's just really fun. It's just really entertaining. Do you ever go somewhere... Um, with story and then think, oh, actually, that's, I don't think that's working. I don't, I don't want it to go there. And then you take it out or wait, when you have that kind of revelation, is it always right? Mm-hmm. No, you know, uh, I think, I think I have that more with novels actually, because I did have to recently throw away a whole half of a novel because I just didn't, and it was like a year's work maybe or something. And I just thought, no, you know, I don't, it's, it wasn't that it was bad exactly, but it was, it was cold. It felt too clinical. Mm-hmm. It felt too cerebral what I was doing. And I, I just didn't want to be doing that. I realized, you know, I and stepped many, away from it. How for many a minute. pages is that at that point? I mean, that would have been maybe a hundred pages, but like in a book, not like manuscript pages, you right, know. Right. And and it wasn't that it was, you know, I wouldn't say it was bad. I just like my heart wasn't in it. All of a sudden, my heart just like dropped out of it, and that does happen to me. So, not less so with short stories because they're so quick. Yeah. You know, it, it you does. almost don't have time to like reflect and regret your actions. <laughs> you know, that's better. Yeah, it does sound to me that. Part of your process, which I know you don't like talking about, right? Nobody really likes I just don't think other people like it when I talk about it. (laughs) I mean, like, do you, is part of the resistance, I'm thinking about this novel that you were saying you threw away, is that because it started to feel like you were too much trying to force a point rather than allowing it to kind of organically blossom from like a single thing that you started writing? I think it was partly that and also partly that it seemed too high, it started to seem too high concept to me Mm -hmm. or something. And so I wasn't, I wasn't sort of close to the emotional core of it because it was too, it was almost sort of, I don't want to say it too intellectual because that sounds pretentious, but it was too, there were too many ideas that the, that the ideas of, it, it was kind of spec fiction and it was okay. asking the reader to accept this sort of alternate world that had just many complexities. And, mm. and all of a sudden I realized why, why is that worth it to anyone? Why is it worth it to me right. to be sort of manipulating these these ideas in this way? What is it giving anyone? <laughs> and I just, and, and you could make an argument for it because people do write that way and stuff, but I just, just my heart wasn't in it anymore. But, but then is that's the really... risk of stepping away from stuff though sure. too, you know, right. as you're writing. And, and then if you just stay away a little too long, it's like the love affair is over, <laughs> you know. That's sad. I wanted to, to get away from your process. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about your house. Mm. I don't know if that's too personal, but no, not at all. Would you tell us about your house and uh, your relationship to your house? Yeah, so that there's a story in here about um, an older woman, Alaska, and how much she loves her house and um, doesn't want to leave it, but she's very elderly and she has to leave it. And really, I wrote that partly because I feel that way about my house, although I'm not yet being forced to leave it uh, due to senescence, but. Um, <laughs> could happen because it's in the middle of the desert it's mm-hmm. it's not you know it's not it's just not urban at all so it's kind of you know it's in there's a national park around it and this sort of um niche niche i don't know how you say that i've never known how to say that word but anyway in the national park with with a little neighborhood of houses in it and it's on a lot of land there'd be it's big sort of like 30 40 foot saguaro cacti all over it you know and prickly pear and it's just a real desert there are about seven mountain ranges around it. So that's the setting of it. It's fairly isolated. And then, and the house is mo- it's very modest. Um, it, it's nothing, it's not large or anything, but I just, and I've, when I first bought it, it was just this um, 
kind of wasn't, had not been permitted, you know, like, and it was made out of like army surplus plywood where they'd put the two by fours or at the wrong orientation within the walls. So, you know how like typically walls will, the two by fours will be sort of a cross section. This isn't really translating to right now, but <laughs> anyway. So they, and they, they were just facing the wrong way. It was like someone built it who didn't even know how to build a house. Oh, wow. And also, when, so when I was kind of renovating it, which I did in stages over the years in this piecemeal way that no architect would, would admire at all, we ripped open the wall in my bedroom and we found these artifacts from the 1970s, which were whole entire full bottles of personal lubricant with these kind wow. of like doves on the, like doves and flowers and Ooh, stuff on the, on, the, on the bottles. It was just odd. Like who walled those away and why? It's very bizarre. <laughs> How like, many bottles were um, there? Like three, I think. Two oh. little ones and a big one, if I mm. recall. Do you think it was a professional house? A professional house. It was a professional house for something, although the people <laughs> who lived there before me were were bookstore owners, feminist oh. bookstore owners. So I don't, know, I don't think it was theirs because they didn't. They weren't there that long. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So anyway, there were a lot of odd things just in the house. Um, like you know, there were tarantulas living in the house and black widows, and there were there were rattlesnakes right on the front door step when I moved in. A lot of like nature had kind of invaded the house, mm-hmm. and then it's so now it's like a solid enough house although we still have run-ins with like pack rats in the ceilings where there was one they were just nesting 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 in the ceiling space a handyman had to finally come and rip that out and about a thousand pounds of pack rat nest feces dead baby pack rats filled and choya which is this very vicious you know cactus that we have there Yeah, all just collapsed. <laughs> Some of his men vomited and stuff. It was horrible. It was horrible. Oh so we still are sometimes invaded by nature. I think that was like eight years ago, maybe. But generally, that doesn't it's like, sound this, like an invasion. That sounds like a <laughs> this doesn't sound like I love yeah, my exactly. house. Yeah, it was like I was cohabiting <laughs> yeah. with the pack rats and stuff. But um, but yeah, no one likes no one likes that kind of situation. It's infringing. But I I love the house. It's just these really deliberate little spaces. There's no big room. There's wood. There's sort of arch ceiling. There's rounded doors. And I just I've just kind of made it exactly the way I want it and I just love it and I just have actually the second I moved in there I was living in New York at the time and I bought it I bought the house this kind of ramshackle thing small house to spend just a few months a year there and then and then I just moved there you know I just like sold my place in New York and just moved into that house and so I really fell in love with it in this and the land there and the way the sky is just a massive sky over the house so I'm really attached to it to perhaps a pathological degree. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was one so reason I wrote that move. story. So you would never You would never move? I would never want to move. I love to travel a lot, so I would travel more than I do if I didn't have small-ish children. Um, but I would never give up the house unless the desert turned into some sort of dust bowl, which it could. Could happen, yeah. Yeah. And do you look at real estate? Is, there, is real estate play a part of your life at all just as a... Not now. Okay. It has in the past. And also just seeing strangers' homes doesn't, play a part in my life these days much you know I just don't get it I don't know if you guys find this as you get a little older but um you know I used to go in my 20s into so many strangers houses like there would just be part parties at strangers houses, yeah. like in yeah. New York where I lived and when I lived here and but that doesn't really happen to me anymore I just get invited to parties at the homes of my old friends that I've had for like 20 years and already <laughs> you know right. like I don't, so I don't see that many new spaces and I kind of miss that so I can't really sneak around spying on people or anything anymore so I have to do it through fiction really because no one's inviting me to their houses. Is that the kind? Is your house the kind of house you grew up in? Not at all. So I grew up in Canada um, from when I was two till I went to college in Toronto, and it was like a fake Tudor house, very messy, inundated with cigarette smoke. We were really happy there, <laughs> and just full of books. And my house, I tend to be really anal about keeping surfaces clean, and mm. uh, it's kind of like as though I reacted to. It is as though. I reacted <laughs> to the sort of disarray of our house growing up and all the, all the cigarette smoke. And, um, but I still like to drink in the house, much as my parents like to drink in their house. So there's that in common, yeah. But it was a very different environment, too. You know, it was Toronto. It was really urban. Mm-hmm. It was quite cold. A lot of big trees. Um, a lot of carpets. And I don't, I don't hold with carpets now. Can you talk about to go back? Because I, I am fascinated, and I love nothing more than snooping 
in people's homes. It's like, because there's, especially the thing that you had said at the beginning of this conversation where it's like what they want you to see and what they don't want you to see. Like, I love looking through people. I mean, spoiler alerts, like if I ever go over to your house, I will look in every drawer as soon as you are. Like every like, drawer? Every, every drawer. That's very wow. bold. Well, now I guess they'll be locking things up when yeah. you come over. Yeah. I don't I don't touch anything, but it's like, I love seeing like medicine cabinets. I like bookshelves. I always look at kitchen drawers, shelves in the kitchen. About like clothing all drawers. cabinets. I desk drawers. D- desk drawers, absolutely. Because I'm fascinated <laughs> to see what the disarray that people leave their drawers in. I mean, and oh, I'm also yeah. a very messy drawer person. Um, so, but can you talk a little bit about like, what did you gravitate towards when you would be in a new house? Like, what are the things that like you love looking at or looking for? Oh, what crimes have I visited upon, <laughs> yeah, upon sure, my sure, acquaintances? Sure. Um, well, What's your really Snoop style? Question. You know, so I love that you admitted to that. That was, yes, very brave I of you. Everyone I tell everyone that, by the way. I'm never And you warn them before you go to, into their homes. Like, I'm, yes. I will be looking at yeah. your collection of dildos that you have. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Yeah. Those actually, you know what? Everybody says that it's like the sex things or the things that you like. Well, I find that usually mostly boring. In yeah, fact, like yeah, every yeah. time that I've seen sex stuff in my like friends' homes, it's always like the most vanilla shit that you could ever imagine, mm-hmm. right? So it's like uninteresting. It's not the most telling because it turns out most people enjoy sex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's so not true. like how much is that going to reveal? I and mean, every it's... good American home has a dildo in it. Well, I like to say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, that is a really good question. I think I was never... I was never a hardcore snooper. I was more of a sort of, I wanted to get sort of psychological angles on people. And for example, I always look at photographs that, that when people have, the, 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 there's people who have photographs up in their houses and there's people who don't mm, of themselves yeah, mostly, yeah. right? And so that's a big distinction for me and one I'm interested in. How many photos of yourself and your family have you plastered onto the walls? What are these photos? Are there also paintings of yourself and family, perhaps made from photos, you know, the, the whole range of, of the self-image sort of being displayed in the home, the range of things that can attest to that I'm interested in. So I'm, yeah, I'm someone who doesn't have a lot of photos. I maybe have a little shelf with like three fo- fo- photos of, you know, my sister and brother and me when we were little or something, but it's kind of tucked away in a room that people don't really wander into. My whole family doesn't really have a culture of big photographs of the self. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm so, I'm always interested in homes where those are prominent. And I, I think sometimes it can be quite innocent. It's actually not a given that that people are just, you know, that much more narcissistic because they, it, it's a cultural thing. It's a, there are, there are complexities to that, to well, that what's, habit. To what's that also custom. fascinating about photos in particular, I love seeing like when it's only baby photos and no photo, like there's huge gaps in time that are not represented on a wall that's otherwise littered with photos, which I always mm-hmm. find really interesting. And then trying to like backwards manufacture like, okay, what happened in that period from like the 90s to like the early 2000s where right. there appear to be no photos of these people? Like, was that a bad time? Was it just a time when they didn't have photos? Mm-hmm. You know, those kind of things. Yeah, and the baby fetish and the kid photography fetish. And it's interesting to see what what families have photos, like where the adults are included and where mm. they're not included. Mm, you know, yeah. some, some adults will not perform. They don't sort of want to pollute images of their children with images of themselves, almost, <laughs> it seems like. So, yeah, the levels of people's self-consciousness. I'm interested in, I'm interested, I guess, in the things in people's homes that aren't useful. So I'm interested in decorative elements and um, personal elements and stuff. Not so interested in, you know, their tool tape, tool, tool shelf. You mean or like yeah. tool bench or whatever. stuff like that. Yeah, anything that seems to want to embody personality, sometimes fail to embody it. Yeah, trinkets. Also just the way they decorate and the way they organize space and, and what space they seem to block off as intimate space, uh, mm. where they draw the line between intimate and personal space and public space, because people's homes can really differ that way. Yeah, There are homes where, like, enter the bedroom, it's fine, you know, and the bedroom is obviously being curated so that you can enter it and right, right. interact with that. Um, other homes, you know, bedroom door shut, maybe even possibly locked sometimes if a party is going on. You know, there there can be oh, interesting. a lot of, or, the, you know, the master bath you can't actually get into if it's a party. Or mm-hmm. you're invited to just stroll right in and look at the Xanax in the, or the Viagra <laughs> or whatever, you know, in the, in the medicine cabinet. I think a lot of people gravitate toward medicine cabinets. Yeah, I think that's yeah. kind of the first thing you do in the bathroom is what's in here is there anything i can pop into my mouth undetected <laughs> well it's also you know, the most or maybe secretive, i just want an advil you know and it's right. the most secretive thing in the bathroom right everything else is kind of out there for you to see 
Right, but the medicine cabinet is where everything gets hidden. Right. On the other hand, it's not locked or anything like that, so you're kind of invited. And it's right behind your face in many cases. Right. So there's yeah. your face. And then there's this um, treasure trove like behind your face. And then you close the treasure trove and you're looking at your face again. So you actually have to confront yourself if you're going to... If you're gonna <laughs> you have to watch yourself break that line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Something, well, no, you were talking about photos, and one of the things that comes up very early on in the book, I think maybe in the first page, is new money versus old money. And you had also mentioned that. I mean, the the sort of bottom line of the of that distinction is money, right? Where throughout this entire book, we have the characters confronting finances sort of over and over and over again, sometimes explicitly, sometimes less so. Something that I was curious about is. One, I guess, how you think about money when you write. And then two is, well, how does, how does one write about money in an interesting way without also making a sort of snobby distinction between, you know, those who have it and those who don't? And that there's, a, there's some cultural capital to for those who don't. Well, one thing is, those are good questions and I'll have to try to organize my yeah, brain. Yeah, sorry. It's but one lot. thing is, uh, you know, my father always said to me when I was growing up, he... Um, he was this really old world kind of gentlemanly person. Who, we weren't allowed to chew gum in the house. He he spoke, you know, seven languages. He was an Egyptologist, so mm-hmm. he had this really esoteric kind of line of work. Um, he also really liked like Mel Brooks and like a lot of broad, <laughs> you know, borderline stupid comedy and everything like that. So he really was like this high lowbrow kind of guy. But he always maintained that that really the divide in American culture in terms of class was not between the rich and the unrich or the rich and the, the um, middle class and the working class and the poor, but, but had to do with education, people's levels mm-hmm. of education. That, that was how he really understood the class system in America. And, of course, you know, we've seen... I, I know what he meant in a certain way, and, and I sort of still kind of cleave to that understanding of class in a certain way. Of course, all that stuff is totally loaded, incredibly loaded, because uh, who gets to get educated? Et cetera, et cetera. But it does make me, like I would never sort of look at Donald Trump and think there's a classy guy, you know? So like that stuff, you know, stays with you, right? But but not everyone agrees with this, really, it turns out. I wouldn't even use the word classy. Like I was raised not to, you would just not use that because it's like a ludicrous word, right? So I guess I don't, I never, I don't find myself or I don't believe myself to be writing directly about money, but more about people's, people's desire as it relates to class and need and their level of desperation. Because the thing is, money is, of course, freedom for the most part here. Although it, it's not a guarantee of it, yeah. but, uh, but it certainly does many times seem to equate to it. <laughs> so so, the, so people's, people's freedom and, and captivity, where it intersects with money and stuff, was kind of interesting to me in this book. And it is very much a, about class, the book, as you, as you noticed. Um, so, yeah, I guess I just don't, I don't know that I, that I hold in my mind that I'm writing about money, mm-hmm. just more writing about people's desire and, and desperation, you know, and money is always a part of that, it seems to me, almost always. Yeah. It's interesting that the book takes place in Los Angeles, which I think really confuses the distinction between old money and new money, mm-hmm. in that it's a place where old money technically doesn't really exist, but of course, you still you still have it, and but there's like a it's almost a veneer of having the same kind of distinctions that one might have elsewhere in the country. Or sometimes there's transplanted old money that ends right. up in LA, yeah. and it's genuine old money and stuff. Yeah. Although old money might often veer away from LA, you know, I don't know. Pasadena <laughs> it, versus Bel Air. Pasadena, yeah, Pasadena is where I think of old money being actually mm-hmm. there's actual the tasteful old money in Pasadena but I just think I, there is old money that acts like new money and new yeah. money that acts like old. of course you know there's it's never stark and it's never black and white and, but I think there are certain habits that tend to be more visible with people who are outrageously newly wealthy just you know I mean things that we all have become familiar with yeah the performance of the self the performance of wealth and often a kind of tone deafness about manners I mean, to to kind of wrap up here, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why 
because we were talking about uh, before the interview, we were saying that some of the concerns about real estate that kind of percolate throughout the collection um, could as much apply to New York City as they do to L.A. or certainly to San Francisco also. Can you talk a little bit about like what L.A. as a setting for all of these stories enabled you to do? Like what kind of freedoms that gave you in terms of picking up any character that seemed to interest you and they are all over the map. Um, So kind of how L.A. was a good space for this collection. Well, first of all, my default setting is always L.A. (laughs) Not that I write every book, you know, to occur in the narrative space of L.A., but I do write many of them. I just feel, I guess in a way, at home here as a writer, I'm not sure. I think I just lived here at the right moment in my 20s or something to sort of have gotten to know the city in different ways and also for it to remain alien and strange to me in ways that interest me. Mm. Um, New York, I lived in for just the same amount of time, but there are so many writers writing about New York and so many of them just littering the sidewalks that I never, I almost never choose New York as the, you know, as the sort of setting for anything, even though I'm completely at home there and really I I don't think I would have a career without New York, you know, (laughs) because, because everything happens there in publishing and yeah, it's yeah. just such a in the way that everything happens here in movies and but so there's that just sort of personal setting but also you know it is kind of a city of really obvious extremes butting up against each other and I sort of wanted that to happen with these characters in this book I wanted I wanted this you know cam girl to be in the same house with kind of lovely discreet elderly scholar who survived the Stalin purges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted those people to meet and like each other and stuff. Um, and so, I don't know, L.A. seems like a natural place for that to happen. In New York, everything's so vertical. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, you can't, it is kind of easier to meet people in New York. But That's so funny. I find that to be exactly the opposite. Is that right? Yeah. Well, when I lived here versus when I lived in New York, just because it was pedestrian, because New York was pedestrian. Oh, that is true, yeah. Um, you know, you could just encounter strangers so readily and speak to them so readily. And, and, you know, but I also grew up in a city that was more like New York, and I took the subway from age 12, mm. like, for an hour and a half a day to school, you know, so I was always talking to strangers as a pedestrian and stuff. So I never quite understood when I lived here how to meet people outside work. All my friends were from work. Um, I never really understood how to meet my neighbors or anything like that. Mm. A thing I still fail at everywhere <laughs> I live. Now that you don't have neighbors, <laughs> but, you're, you're cool on that. I actually do. I mean, there you just have to walk a bit, but still, after almost 20 years, I should really know them more than I do. It's, it's pathetic. I mean, it's actually a personal flaw. Um, but yeah, so I always felt kind of more... I don't know if more estrangement in LA than I did in New York, but it also makes it just a more welcoming city to write about to me. I guess I feel at once at home and yeah, and estranged here. And so maybe it's a it's a good crossing of something for me. All right. We've been speaking with Lydia Millett, author of Fight No More. Thanks so much for joining us. This was really fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Lydia Miller, author of Fight No More. But now we have a tribute to Jonathan Gold from writer Jervy Turvalon. We're excited to have on the phone with us today Jervy Turvalon. Jervy is a Los Angeles-based writer and the executive director of Literature for Life, an educational advocacy organization, as well as the creative director for the Pasadena Lit Fest. He recently published a poem titled Adventures in Life and Food with Jay Gold on LARB as a tribute to Jonathan Gold in the wake of the legendary L.A. food writer's death in late July. Welcome to the show, Jervy. Oh, thank you for having me. So first, can you talk to us a little bit about how you knew Jonathan and kind of what type of person you knew him to be? Well, I met Jonathan when I was in high school. Uh, His uh, mom uh, was my high school librarian at this uh, high school called Dorsey High School. Mm. And it was uh, largely African-American and uh, Japanese-American high school. And her library was the place where we poop butts or nerds um, (laughs) would go to play chess and read science fiction and, you know, just be kind of what we were, you know, misfits. And one day there was Jonathan, the white kid. (laughs) <laughs> was being very comfortable with Dorsey. And Mrs. Gold, again, she was extremely important in my life. My best friend at the time used to sneak into her office with my girlfriend's sister and make love to his girlfriend in her office. <laughs> so she was 
Wow. She was very important in the landscape of our allies' work. So um, I met Johnson back then, and I didn't really pay that much attention. But years later, when he started doing those food reviews, I started paying attention because I never cared about food reviews at all. And suddenly I was reading the food review every week. And my ex-wife and I used to compete for who got to keep the food review. <laughs> but Jonathan wrote other things for the LA Times. And one of the things he wrote was a essay about the passing of his mother. And when I realized who it was, I was like stunned. So I wrote something for the LA Weekly. So I went to a publication party and there he was and I introduced myself. And then we started hanging out. And that's how I got to know him. So you say he used to carry around and fight over the food reviews. Uh, what did his writing mean to you, and how did it influence you? Well, his food reviews his food reviews were not food reviews in the way I looked at it, because I always thought that uh, when I would read food reviews, they essentially seemed to be a reflection of the person's taste, mm. while Jonathan was writing about something else. He was writing about experience. So it was a, a quantitatively different thing. And also, the thing that puzzled me about him, he was writing about restaurants in areas of town that I probably wouldn't have been comfortable going in. If you grew up in certain neighborhoods, and, you know, I love growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in, a black neighborhood, you know, you kind of tend to worry more about your personal safety. And Johnson didn't seem to be concerned about his personal safety, so <laughs> I got the impression that he would go to places like Skateland to hear hip-hop and that sort of thing. And I wasn't going to go to sk- uh, Skateland because I didn't want to get jacked. <laughs> or put myself in that position. So I thought that he was either insane or very brave. So anyway, the food reviews seemed to be more of an extension of his personality. And I describe him in, this, in the poem as having like his Herculean generosity, which I think is really true of him. I mean, he was genuinely incredibly generous person. And he could be very, very cutting. <laughs> he would tell you the truth even if you wanted. Even if you didn't agree with this truth, he would tell it to you. <laughs> it was always about generosity, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, because one of the things that the signature style of his, right, is to write those food reviews in the second person, right? To like, you know, imagine that you are sitting in this bar, in this, you know, restaurant or this hole in the wall. And he seemed to, most of his writing really seems to break down borders, not only in what he's covering, but also in kind of the distance between the critic and the reader. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, I have to admit, at some point, I never really want to know where we're going to go eat. <laughs> because I didn't want to be disappointed there's going to be some place that specialized in ways to make turnips or something. <laughs> this is when you would go out to eat with Jonathan. Yeah, it was more about just hanging out. He used to say that he always would take me to the bad restaurant because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't care. <laughs> and so, uh, and I didn't care. There'd be moments where it would be humorous how strange some of the food might be uh, that he was making judgments about. But, you know, hanging out with him was always fun. It was always a kind of a adventure to see what could happen. Well, maybe we could hear that poem. I you know, also wanted to make a comment about Johnson's. One of the reasons I think he was so beloved in Los Angeles is that he kind of really took seriously the idea of being Angelino. I mean, he took seriously that, you know, he was a part of a city that was, his whole was greater than his parts. And, I mean, he even said jokingly at once that he was a race trader, which I thought was amusing because <laughs> I didn't understand what he meant. But as... Time went on, and I started to understand that he uh, he just felt like he was part of something bigger, and it wasn't about race. You know, we were really a balkanized city after the riots, and Jonathan is one of those people that decided to break down those walls and create those a map to the whole city. And I, you know, will always admire him for for that and his fearlessness. Okay, adventures in life and food with Jay Go. I knew you since high school, hanging in your mom's library at Dorsey. We both kissed it on Hollywood corners, saw the black dude with curlers and shower caps, miming to opera records and then freaks in those bookstores. Remember a lifetime later, you started calling me your young friend, though I was two years older, and we started to roll through your L.A., and I learned you ate everything. We were at another place where Hollywood agents ate, and the salmon mousse tasted weird, salt that wouldn't dissolve. You said it was fine until you tried it and said, don't eat it. That's not salt. It's glass. The jar had imploded. Damn, so weird. And on the way home, you made that right on La Cienega and the police pulled us over. And you had those expired tags and went all false staff on those rollers. And one touch his gun, 
then they towed the truck and we were stuck under a freeway overpass at midnight in a gangster hood until Lori rescued us. Remember that time I was on the phone with Jingwan in China? You know, there's police behind us. Fire tags, no thing at all. Until they ordered me out struck at gunpoint, handcuffed us both on Beverly Boulevard. I politely suggested that you were a famous food writer. You whispered, don't bother, they won't listen. Finally, they realized that you weren't a gay felon who shot at top and let us go to that seafood joint. Remember those tasteless fat olives that were really water bugs? And that cold, fresh blood soup? Remember those not-so-great crickets in that mezcal bar at 4 a.m. Guadalajara where the L.A. writers enjoyed Tabatillo and Rossi? Remember that rose parade at Sumi and that frigid horizontal rain? Our brood riding in the truck bed to and fro where we ate cinnamon rolls while Lisa and Leon broke into a breakdance and back home for Black Eyed Peas to celebrate the new year. Remember Santa Barbara where Jingwan and I would be married and you were the best man to sign your name where hers was supposed to be and the Justice of Peace thought we were getting hitched? Remember awards and books and travels and endless brilliant meals at your house? Remember the travails and happiness of family and friends? Remember that you belong to Los Angeles to all in your singular Herculean generosity. We remember it all and we will remember you as we look at Los Angeles and ourselves through gold eyes. And I remember the truth. I never ate better than at your house. Thank you so much, Jervy. That was really beautiful. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. I wrote it for Lori. I told I was going to write her epic poem about her husband. And then I said, damn, I said that. Now i got to try something. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for talking with us. Thanks so much. Take care. Hey, you're welcome. We've been speaking with Jervy Turvalon who has offered us his memories and a poem about the late, great Jonathan Gold. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.